0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported
1: community radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
0: And I'm Noel her Husky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, July 7th, 2022.
1: Later in the program, Bring It On hosts Clarence Boone and Liz Mitchell speak with Dr. Gina Forrest, who has conducted extensive research on sundown towns in Indiana. More in the bottom half of our program.
0: Also coming up in the next half hour, concerned parents discussed school safety measures during the latest MCCSC school board meeting. That's coming up next in your daily headlines.
1: The Monroe County Commissioners' Meeting on June 29th, President Julie Thomas read a statement on behalf of the commissioners, signed on to a local public official's statement on the reversal of Roe v. Wade.
2: In response to the devastating and harmful decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, the undersigned public officials in Bloomington, Monroe County, and Township government stand together in support of an individual's right to bodily autonomy and reproductive choice. Further, as community leaders in Bloomington Monroe County, we are proud to fund the healthcare, childcare, and birth control needs of low income individuals and families through multiple local grant programs and township assistance. We stand with Planned Parenthood and the All Options Pregnancy Center as they meet the reproductive healthcare needs of the most vulnerable in our community. We call upon state legislators in Indiana to exercise reason and respect and to protect individuals' rights to make their own health care decisions in consultation with their own health care providers. We object to any legislative course of action that further erodes a person's right to choose. Thoughtful compassion is the foundation of any just and equitable community as public officials, it is our responsibility to speak out when we see rights stripped away from our residents and it is our obligation to oppose decisions that will cause unjust hardship and increased poverty for those that we represent. We object to any civil or human right being taken away by activists on the US Supreme Court and to any legislative action that undermines the well-being of our residents or those of the state of Indiana
1: the commissioners shared a proclamation about the LGBTQ plus rights movement. Commissioner Penny Givens said that from now on, June 28th will be recognized as Pride Day in Monroe County.
2: And in support of Pride Month, we have flown the pride flag throughout the month of June at the Monroe County Courthouse. As we say every week in our opening statement, we affirm the right of every resident of Monroe County to live peacefully and without fear. Now, therefore, we, the Monroe County Commissioners, Claim June 28, 2022 as Pride Day.
1: Thomas also shared a proclamation making June 29, 2022 as Eric Evans Day in honor of Director of Technical Services Eric Evans, who is leaving his position. According to Givens, Evans was hired in 2013 and helped the county get through a variety of obstacles.
2: In his tenure as the director, Eric raised the standard for the county's technology And Eric oversaw the migration of data to the cloud, guided the creation of our new website and provided vital support in the creation of the OpenGov system for the planning, building and health departments. He led the technical services department and Monroe County through power outages, cut cables, server issues, email spam, a flood and a pandemic.
1: Commissioner Lee Jones said that Evans was an integral part of the switch to the Zoom meetings to keep county business going during the pandemic.
2: Yes, and I'd like to add that not all county
3: employees and elected officials were easy to get participating on Zoom, (laughs) and I was certainly one of those. And Eric was very, very patient and went quite a ways out of his way to help me be able to continue to participate in our
1: meetings. Next, the commissioners approved a request from the Parks Board to fund a Painting in Nature program. Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation, John Robertson, presented the agreement with Sarah Erickson. Um, So, these programs will consist of a 30-minute
3: environmental education activity to begin, and then will be followed by the painting, which will take around an hour and a half. Um, The first event is scheduled at Will Detmer Park on July 16th for anybody that's interested in attending, Um, and then there will be a registration fee for for $10. Um, It should be noted on the agreement that the amount is not to exceed $290, that's actually for both programs, so each one will be $145. Um, I myself am not a
1: great painter, but I have no doubt that this will be a popular activity. Commissioner Jones asked if there would be an age limit on the program. Robertson said that it would be open to everyone. The commissioners approved the funding unanimously. The next commissioners' meeting will be held on July 6th.
0: During public comment at the Richland Bean Blossom School Board meeting on June 20th, a concerned parent asked the board to rewrite the policy regarding attendance during finals week. If
4: my child needs to reschedule his finals for some reason, we have the capital and the privilege to back that up to get those exams rescheduled. I'm not trying to sound elitist. I'm being honest about the reality of where we live in this country. Now think about the student who's from a single parent home, free and reduced lunch, an IEP, lives in Section 8 housing, moved here from another country six weeks ago to escape persecution, and English is not their primary language. Does that student or family have the privilege or capital to advocate for their child for their exams to be done for a, during a family emergency? What is the practice that's in place to support these kids? How do they know that they can reach out and get an alternative testing time? um okay last paragraph it's my hope that you'll do what's right by our children i do not agree with the policy the way it's written but i believe that it sets children up for failure written to reflect a zero tolerance policy if you decide to approve the handbook the way it's written fine i urge you to give the directive to the rbb administrative team to go back to their teachers to engage in real conversation about their practices what's best for kids and develop a plan to support all students based on their specific needs
0: Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin asked the board to approve changes to the 2022-2023 classified handbook. Irwin explained that it is a yearly renewal and that they work with Ferguson Law to ensure the handbook is current with the law and board policies. Board member Brad Tucker thanked Irwin for his hard work on the handbook and asked him how it would be shared with the staff.
5: Just, I just want to thank Mr. Irwin and the powers to be putting that together and getting everything updated and a- clean, orderly fashion, because it was kind of a little bit of a mess uh, prior to the last three years. So I appreciate all the time and effort you put into that to get it updated. Yeah. Um, I assume this is all going to be communicated to the classified staff via the online portal.
0: Erwin responded.
1: Yeah, so it gets posted online, and it's on our website, and then at the beginning of each year, we just have them sign an acknowledgment to say, hey, I've had an opportunity to look at look at the handbook, and again, we post it online on the website. So, that they're able to look at it again, it just outlines all of those things that they need to know about different benefits, different policies, different procedures. Um, In that case, hey, you're never going to remember all that stuff right off the top of your head, and it's easy just to go back and and take a look at it again. It did take a lot of time to put it together, and it's a lot more um, expansive than what the the previous one was, Um, but it obviously outlines a whole lot more than what was there, so it gives people. Uh, a better outline of what's, what the expectations are, what their benefits are, how to access that or who to go to and that sort of thing. So,
0: Board President Dana Robert Kerr thanked Ferguson Law for their help reviewing the handbook and other contracts on the agenda. The board approved the handbook changes unanimously. The next meeting will be held on July 18th.
1: During public comment at the Monroe County Community School Corporation board meeting on June 28th, many parents spoke about school safety and asked the board to take more action. First, Elizabeth Bullock shared that she has asked the board to improve their school's safety plan by arming the security officers before and wants to make sure the board takes actionable steps to protect the students.
6: I want to really begin tonight by um acknowledging an email I received from April about the board's stance on rearming SROs. April, I think it's pretty clear we disagree about this particular issue, but I really appreciate your willingness to at least listen, respond and dialogue with us. Um, I think it's added a little bit of humanness in this otherwise somewhat stoic and seemingly ineffective public comment process. So um, from that email, I think it's my understanding that the board under no circumstances plans to rearm SROs. Um, You also stated in your email, you believe that law enforcement is not equipped to handle high powered assault rifles used to attack in attacks such as that in Uvalde. And you suggested I focus my efforts on better gun sense laws. So I wanna be really clear um, that I've come to this board meeting month after month requesting that MCSC make improvements to school safety plans that are preventative and immediate in nature. Um, Gun sense laws are absolutely part of my big picture mission, um, but not something the school system can implement today that's gonna keep our children safe. So at this time, I don't really believe that the board is doing everything they can to really reduce risk of fatalities in the potential um, situation of
1: a school shooting. Concerned parent Maria Douglas agreed, saying she would like to see the board increase school safety measures.
7: This is the ninth month I've attended the meeting to talk about the need for increase in school safety. A lot can happen in nine months. Some of us could have had a baby in nine months. Laws have been passed. There have been over 27 school shootings and 83 students and staff killed or injured, according to Education Weekly. And remember, no one is left uninjured in any of these school shootings, so 83 is a very low number because of psychological and mental health uh, trauma that happens when uh, there's a school shooting. Um, last month's meeting took place in the early hours of coverage on the Uvalde shooting. At that point, we had no time, or we, at that time, we had no idea the carnage and mistakes that had been made, but we do now. What have we learned? What are we going to do differently? What precautions are we going to take? We've asked for a robust and properly trained SRO program, as I, as I felt this was the simplest, easiest, least invasive cost-effective measure uh, since, as Elizabeth said, they're pulling down funds. Um, It's been made clear that's not gonna happen. So what are we doing? Again, like she asked, are we holding active shooter drills in our empty schools this summer? Are we training our current SROs? Are we collaborating with local law enforcement? Are we building relationships, creating tactical plans? Are we working on transparency and timely communication with faculty and staff? So they can act or instruct according to the situation and are we looking at any immediate short-term solutions to prevent guns of any type from entering the schools for all of some people who like to troll me on the social media and to the board respectively this is a yes and situation not an either or okay this is a social services programming and metal detectors or how about maybe a dog right This is a gun storage safety and securing the 19 doors itself. This is advocating for better gun control laws and collaboration with the local law enforcement. So I ask the board and I ask the people that troll me on the social medias, what are you doing to keep the school safe? Again, I'm calling for the reinstatement of community conversations, as I have asked before, so we can understand what seems like inaction from the board, how we can understand that. Again, there was a gun at South the last week of school. The protocols you presented to us in that PowerPoint a few months ago were not followed. We have no reason to trust that you have it handled, that you are doing everything that you can, as you said you have, or you're trying to, to keep the school safe. So I'm just not sure at this point what it's going to take. It's going to happen, you guys, and you'll be responsible for it.
1: Dr. Markay Winston gave an update on the anti-racism policy development after students spoke out at their last school board meeting.
8: In response to the insightful remarks from four MCCSE students who spoke during the May 24th board meeting, the following short-term actions have been taken. One, a student meeting. Dr. Hoswell, myself, and our Director of Student Services, Becky Rose, met with all four young ladies about their personal experiences, observations, concerns, and suggestions regarding the development of a policy to address anti-racism. Two, meeting with an IU professor. I met with Dr. Riley to learn more about her concerns and her interest in the development, in supporting the development of such a policy. Three, timeline development. We developed an aggressive timeline for Engaging students and staff over the next several months in the development of an anti-racism policy. We acknowledge that it is a lengthy process and works properly, but we are fully engaged in making sure that we have a representative sample of students from across multiple backgrounds so that their voices are heard as well. The fourth action that we've taken, um, student handbook statement. We developed a preliminary anti-racism, anti-microaggression statement to be included in our 2022-2023 student handbooks. The proposed handbook statement is designed to do some of the following items. We'll do each of the following items. One, to reaffirm MCCSC's commitment to ensuring a safe and inclusive learning environment for all students. Two, to acknowledge that the use of racial slurs and microaggressions are not acceptable and that their usage will not be tolerated within our schools. Third, to affirm our collective commitment to respond to all instances of suspected racial bias or harassment in a timely and comprehensive manner.
1: The next MCCSE School Board meeting will be held on August 23rd. In today's feature report, Bring It On hosts Clarence Boone and Liz Mitchell speak with Dr. Gina Forrest, who has conducted extensive research on sundown towns in Indiana. Dr. Forrest graduated from Indiana University Bloomington with a master's of public health and a PhD in health behavior, focusing on health inequities. She was a former chief diversity officer with the Indiana Supreme Court. We turn now to that excerpt from Bring It On.
5: Sundown towns, also known as sunset towns, gray towns, or sundowner towns, are all white municipalities or neighborhoods in the United States that practice a form of racial segregation by excluding non whites via some combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, or violence. The term came from signs posted that colored people had to leave town by sundown.
9: Entire sundown counties and sundown suburbs were also created by the same process. The practice was not restricted to southern states, with New Jersey and other northern states being described as equally inhospitable to Black travelers until at least the early 1960s. Historically, towns have been confirmed as sundown towns by newspaper articles and county his- histories.
5: Several years ago, we had the pleasure of interviewing the late Dr. Jim Lowen. He was a meticulous researcher and prolific writer who authored Lies My Teacher Told Me and Sundown Towns and numerous other books and articles about race, racism, truth in history, and social justice. Before he passed away in August of 2021, he had a profound impact on many scholars and researchers, including our guest this evening, Dr. Gina Forrest.
9: Dr. Gina Forrest is a native Hoosier and wants to help our state become more healthy, inclusive and welcoming. She graduated from Indiana University Bloomington with a master of public health and a PhD in health behavior, focusing on health inequities. She was a former chief diversity officer with the Indiana Supreme Court.
5: And Dr. Gina, as she likes to be called, has experience working with nonprofits and not-for-profit organizations and academia. She has taught undergraduate courses at Butler University and Indiana University, including health disparities, public health program planning, public health administration, healthcare in diverse communities, Personal health, exploring public health and community health and human sexuality. She is the proud mom of two young men. And in her spare time, she volunteers in her community with those experiencing homelessness and sex workers. Dr. Gina has conducted extensive research on sundown towns in Indiana. And Dr. Gina Forrest, welcome to bring it on.
3: Welcome, Dr. Gina. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you.
5: Should I uh should I also Use Dr. Gina rather than Dr. Gina Flores uh, with the MPH and and a PhD in this and that and that. You have a now, mile long. No, you could just say Gina's
3: fine. Gina's okay. fine. Yeah. <laughs>
5: um, I and and just to let our listening audience know, I sat through a workshop that she uh, uh, presented for the uh, Indiana Parks and Recreation. Indi- well, yeah, the Indiana Parks and Recreation uh, uh, Administration. There was a summer workshop on social equity, and she had everyone just basically enrapped attention and had us in the palm of her hand as she talked about inequities. And, and as we would say in, in our in our neighborhood, she went there on another number of different topics and jaws were dropping. But yet again, she was speaking truth. And uh, for that, we really appreciate all that she does. Sundown towns. What sparked your interest in researching Sundown Towns?
3: You know, my interest came uh, years ago. Uh, I was probably 1920-ish, so this would have been 1993, 94, and I was attending Vincennes University, and depending on the route that you travel to get there, Uh, I would go through Bloomfield, Linton and go in that way. And Linton's sign came down not that long or in my area, in my era. So that is just very shocking to me that I don't consider myself that old. Yes, I'm 48, but in my mind, you want to think that this happened a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, not in my 48 years of being here. So that was just very frightening. I think too, what happens is, as you travel or as you go places, you always have people, black people, that would say, "Which way are you going? How are you going to get there? Call me when you get there." And I can remember um, going to Second Baptist Church. And if we would travel in the southern part of the state, uh, especially in when we would get to Salem, Indiana, uh, we would duck down in the seats as we traveled through Salem. Uh, and I was I'm little. I mean, we're talking ten and under, and just remember thinking, why are am I? Why are we on a bus? A church bus full of people having a great time, but we are having to feel like we want to duck our heads down and not be seen as we travel through an entire city. It just doesn't make any, I mean, it makes sense because of racism, but in my mind back then, I couldn't understand it. And then I've been traveling, I commute to Indianapolis for work. I've been doing that for a number of years. And of course, the minute I say I'm a commuter from Bloomington to Indianapolis, what is the first thing people ask me? How is it when you go through Martinsville and that's always, you know, we have 92 counties in Indiana and we're always so fixated on Martinsville, but there are, you know, the other 91, it's not like they're all inclusive either, but, but we stick to Martinsville. So just a, a mixture of my own experience and just wanting to know why, but then I also want to make sure that our younger generations, because I teach, I want to make sure that they understand that this happened because some students do not know that sundown towns is even a thing. And I don't want them to forget that this is our immediate past. It wasn't your great, 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 great grandmother. This was your mother who could have experienced going through a sundown town.
9: Uh, Dr. Gina, do you feel that integration and and has kind of wiped out some of the history so that this generation coming up now they think the the playing field is level they have no idea about being safe and what's really
3: out there they don't have a clue I think that they I think you're right right I think they don't get it to the level that I feel that they should get it This isn't a surface thing. Our policies, our laws are so deeply rooted uh, in white supremacy that they have to understand how deep this goes. And that even if sundown towns might not exist now, they have to still, I hope, realize the consequences of us having sundown towns at one point, that we still live in those kinds of segregated neighborhoods. I think our students, our student age—I'm talking our 18 to 22 year olds. I don't think they, of course, now I'm stereotyping a a whole mass of people, but I would say that they, a, don't see maybe a lot of overt racism, so they think it's gone, and they are not in tune to the covert racism that happens all the time.
9: Okay, your definition of a sundown town is a town that that says uh either has uh um overt signs that says be out right. by, before the sun goes down that's your definition of a sundown town correct because I do a lot of traveling and believe you me you mean I see a lot of all white towns.
3: Yes and we don't and we don't think of it that way. We just think oh we're in Indiana. You know, it, no big deal. So what if town X has all white people? We don't, it's like, I want us to think back though. Why did this happen? We have to understand our history so we can move forward and not repeat itself. So if you travel through Indiana, we can go through many towns that might have one registered black person, two registered black people. That's ridiculous. We know that those roots of that go back to sundown towns.
5: Yeah. I am. Um... I I, want to jump in as far as what you just stated, that statistic. And while you didn't quote an official statistic, I was told, oh, about maybe at least maybe 10 years ago, that there is someone of color, someone Black in all 92 counties of Indiana. Yes. And I don't know why that shocked me back then. I just just don't know why. But now, listening to this conversation, was this a sort of a... um, an offshoot of Jim Crow, sort of the last vestige of Jim Crow in Indiana?
3: Yes, exactly. What would happen is some towns would say, okay, we're a town of 5,000 people, all white people, and we're going to let one Black family in, maybe a brown family. Brown, the definition of brown, when I use brown, I'm not talking about complexion. I mean, those who identify as indigenous, Native American, Asian, and Hispanic, Latina, Mm -hmm. Um, so black and brown people, they would say, you know what, let's have one black family live here and that's okay. Now, if there's trouble in another town close to us, we want to, you know, we're going to maybe make you move, but it's not surprising that there's one black family or one black person in each town because it was a rite of passage. We know that white, some white folks, especially in that time period, they wanted a black family in there because they would do the labor.
1: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Clarence Boone.
0: Our theme music was provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider.
1: And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org.
0: The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program.
1: Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB.